Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today, I'm speaking to Cliff Hawkins, a clinical psychologist who over the past 35 years has had an awe-inspiringly diverse career. Just going through his CV, it's clear that doing more than therapy has been central to his career from the beginning. And there's so much that I think we could all learn from. So I'm just going to jump in and welcome Cliff Hawkins to the podcast. Hi, Cliff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rosie. So thank you so much for coming on today, Cliff. Over 35 years, you've done some really cool stuff. So if you had to pick just one thing that you've done, what would you say has been the most professionally fulfilling part of your career? For me, undoubtedly, it was having the opportunity to be involved in opening Ukraine's first school for children with severe learning disabilities shortly after Ukraine separated from the Soviet Union. Wow, that's an amazing thing to be part of. How on earth did you get into that? Well, I was very lucky. I was working at the Institute of Psychiatry at the time with Professor Bill Yule, and uh, a couple of Ukrainian parents had come to England, the Institute of Psychiatry, to seek a diagnosis for their, their young daughter. And I was asked to work with them clinically. And it became clear that when they went back to Ukraine, their child wouldn't be entitled to any support whatsoever, um, would, would be excluded from school. And so uh, Bill Yule and I thought, well, we need to do something to help here. So we started off by raising money. And quickly, we realised that money wasn't sufficient, that what they needed was some help in setting up a school, which would effectively be a private school. And so what I did was went to Ukraine and started giving lectures at the Institute of Psychology there about special education in the UK. And what I learned very quickly was that our task wasn't to replicate a British system of special education in Ukraine. That would be akin to cultural fascism. Rather, what we needed to do was to help Ukrainian parents develop a Ukrainian system that could draw on the rich heritage of Russian psychology as well as the ideas that we'd learnt in British psychology. I mean that's just amazing on so many levels. To start with obviously I can imagine thinking we need to raise some money for this issue. Yes. But then how did you take the next steps when you realised that wasn't going to be adequate? How did you make the links that you needed even? By raising, firstly raising money to to fly, fly me out to Ukraine. This was in the context of the Soviet Union had just ended. Ukraine was, was in turmoil. Everyone was very optimistic about the future. However, at that particular point, the Ukrainian economy had gone into meltdown um, and uh, government systems had, had gone into meltdown as well. Um, luckily, universities hadn't, and they were starting to be very keen on inviting Westerners to come over and talk about Western science and particularly psychology. And what I found was that there were many Ukrainian psychologists who were very keen on a non-medical approach to special education and to special needs in general, because previously psychiatry had been the dominant model. And thankfully, from our point of view, psychiatry had been completely discredited because of psychiatry's collusion with um, state-sponsored detention of people in psychiatric hospitals. So many of the parents of children I was working with, I was told those parents were simply not prepared to 
have their child see a psychiatrist, but because clinical psychology was virtually unknown, they didn't mind seeing a clinical psychologist. And so we, we were able to fill, fill that vacuum. Wow, what a context. And at that time, how did that compare to the context you're working under in this country? Well, it, it was surreal. I was working at that point in the NHS, actually, with, uh, with adults with learning disabilities in a, in a regular NHS job, um, following normal NHS rules and all the benefits and, and costs that, that that implied. And then I was working in effectively a Wild West scenario in Ukraine, where um, normal rule of, of law didn't apply. Uh, bribery was the way to get things done. I, at that point, I didn't speak a word of Russian, so I was reliant on interpreters and not always sure how far I could trust either the interpreter's ability or their, their motives. And so it was a real, a real contrast. But what I found was that the, the confidence I learned from making things happen in Ukraine then transferred to other areas of my professional and indeed my personal life that I thought, well, if I can, if I can achieve this, I can achieve anything. Yeah, I bet. Because often um, when I speak to other psychologists in this country and we're, we're trying to set things up, we're trying to get things moving, the red tape is really intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you just feel like I just don't even understand commissioning enough to, yes, to put yes. forward an idea, right? Um, yeah. But actually, you did that in a, in a system where you didn't speak the language, you didn't have the cultural references. Mm. So, yeah, I suppose we should probably stop moaning. <laughs> we found whiskey was the way to cut through red tape. Um, Scotch whiskey was very, very expensive on the black market. And we found that bottles of Scotch whiskey miraculously enabled things to happen. So that wow. might work. Might, I don't know if that would work in the NHS. I don't know. I mean, I haven't tried it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that sounds like an amazing experience, but certainly must have been an intimidating one. How did you feel kind of flying out with that mission in your mind? My, the first, my first thought the first time I flew out was I, I can't speak the language. I'd, like, like most people of my generation, I, I knew nothing about Russia or the Soviet Union other than Cossack hats and bears. Um, I'd bought myself a, a tape, Teach Yourself Russian, a couple of weeks before I went, and it didn't work at all. I still couldn't speak a word of Russian. So on the flight, I was desperately reading Teach Yourself Russian books and thinking, well, this isn't going to work. Um, and what I learned was that didn't matter, that my training as a clinical psychologist meant that body language was key. So often, if I was interviewing a parent of a child with a learning disability, I would often have an interpreter of, of sorts there. However, what I found was that by focusing on the parent, um, I'd pick up the odd word and there were more similarities than differences in how that, how that parent was talking. So over time, I found that I, I could learn the key words and that my clinical psychology training was sufficient, that I could get, I could get the message from what the parent was saying or the grandparent in, in that society. Often the grandparent, uh, the grandmother is, is the key carer rather than, than the mother. Gosh, I mean, that's really inspiring to me, particularly because um, because of my husband's job, we're moving to Turkey for a couple of years. Oh, right. right. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to work clinically in Turkey. Um, I will. I'll still be carrying on my online practice. Um, mm. But I've been trying to learn the language using the Rosetta right. Stone. And there's just something missing, isn't there? There's no yes. human 
Um, and I have been saying to my husband optimistically that I feel like I'll pick it up more when I can see mm. somebody speaking it to me. Yes, yes. Um, but it's still, I'm, I'm very comforted um, by your story because you went out there and did something amazing and ambitious. My only hope is to survive. Right, right. <laughs> so I feel like if you can do that, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can survive it. So you must have had... I don't know, no idea really how this was going to end up when you no, were first no. going out there. How did things take shape? Like, what was the timeline? Within, things took a lot longer than we expected because of the collapse of the Ukrainian economy. So we raised uh, quite a lot of money in the, in the UK, people running the London Marathon and so on. Um, and what we did was we enabled a group of teachers and parents to open a school in a, in a disused school building so it was effectively a private school mm. we raised the money to pay the teachers salaries and we paid them in us dollars which gave us a massive advantage so we were able to poach teachers from the state sector who were being paid in the local money which was becoming worthless because of hyperinflation so a comparatively small amount of us dollars went a long long way mm. um at the Institute of Psychiatry, we set up a charity specifically for this project. And initially, we thought we would support it for five years, financially and in terms of expertise. We didn't want this to be a British school. We wanted to be supporting a Ukrainian school. Mm. Uh, what we found, though, was that as the five years were coming to an end, the school still wasn't able to be self-sufficient financially. So we carried on supporting it. And uh, we, said, we set ourselves an absolute deadline of 10 years, and we stuck to that. So at the end of 10 years, we, we pulled out completely and I'm, I'm still in contact with people in the school. I'm still friends with many of the people and the school is still going and it's thriving. And it's a Ukrainian school. It's not a British school. And uh, we're, we're very pleased about that. That's so, amazing. That's amazing. So I have no formal surprised. contact. Excuse me. I was just saying I'm not surprised that the timeline um, had to be extended a bit. Um, but I love the fact that you were flexible with that, flexible enough to be like, this is still the goal, this is still what we want, but actually it needs a bit more nurture, it needs a bit more time before we can set it free in that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for that five-year period, were you out there the whole time? No, no, no. I would, I would go out typically for a couple of weeks at a time. By this stage, I'd, I'd left the Institute of Psychiatry. I was working in the NHS full-time. And luckily, that employer was very good at giving me study leave. And I used all my annual leave, of course, and would typically be there for a week or two at a time, often taking other, other colleagues, professionals with me, psychologists, speech and language therapists, OTs. And then when I was in the UK, I'd be uh, having lots of links. There weren't good computer links at that point. A lot of the contact had to be either by telephone or fax. Um, mm. I was in, in the very early days of, of email. And so um, I would be project managing from the UK and then going there to, to Ukraine whenever I needed to. And also, as it turned out, then going to other former Soviet countries to learn from what they were doing. Some, some former Soviet countries were further ahead in terms of special education. And clearly it was going to be more useful for Ukraine to make links with, for example, Belarus and Lithuania than it was to always be dependent on a distant country such as the UK. Wow. I mean, what really strikes me um, from what you've said so far is that you had a very, what I would call even now, progressive mindset um, in that I think, you know, when I think back to 
that period because this was the early 90s yes yeah, yeah. early to mid 90s yeah so in my household we didn't have a computer wouldn't even have thought about having a computer in fact um i think my parents knew what they were <laughs> so that's about it um so the idea that you would do something as ambitious as you know starting relationships in different countries and introducing people to each other and setting up a network in that way hmm. did you have a background that put you in that mindset I don't, I don't think so. What, what we found was that former Soviet countries were way ahead of the UK in terms of understanding of, of things such as email and the possibilities. So my, the first emails I, I was getting were, were from colleagues in former Soviet countries, not from, not from the UK or from the US. Wow. And I think in, in the UK, because certainly people of my generation had a stereotype of Russia and the Soviet Union, that stereotype is, is a stereotype. And in fact, um, the Soviet Union and, and Soviet countries put a lot of store by science, much more so than in the UK. A scientist is, is a term of respect in former Soviet countries, whereas in the UK, it usually it's, it's, uh, it suggests someone who's a bit wacky, a bit weird. Um, yes, I've noticed that, actually. I did some research in the Czech Republic when I was... Oh, yes, yes. And um, when I arrived, they had a little sign for me and my um, colleague that said, welcome rock star scientists. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like you wouldn't see that in the UK. No, no. It's probably no. the favourite label I've ever been given. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I, what I did bring was a, a mistrust of working within the system. It seemed to me that to be a truly effective clinical psychologist, it was necessary to work outside the system as well as within the system to not not be constrained not to be a drone if, if you like i think that many clinical psychologists are constrained by by definition where intelligent people to have got got through the various got over the various hurdles to qualify and then i think particularly the nhs can, can constrain us sometimes deliberately sometimes accidentally so that we're not we're not making the most of our gifts Mm, I think that's true, actually. I think I didn't particularly want to go into private practice when I did. It was life circumstances for me dictated it. Um, but, and I thought it was just going to be terrifying, frankly, at the beginning. Um, but what I found about a year in is I started to find my creativity with it. Mm. And I started to really enjoy the fact that I was like, oh, I think we need a group. Oh, I'll do a group. <laughs> and it was like, oh, there's no layers of approval. There's no, I don't have to... I mean, sure, I still do service evaluation of my own, um, but it's, there's not that extra layer of mm, mm. scrutiny that can sometimes be a bit oppressive. Yes, yes. But it, it does usually take a bit of a kick for a lot of us NHS psychologists to start thinking like that. Yes, yes. So kind of where did your kick come from? Because it seems like you had it so early in your career. I think I was lucky in that I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a psychologist from the age of 15. Um, and in those days, that being a psychologist was most definitely a wacky idea. And I remember the school I went to was a very old fashioned, traditional boys only school. And I remember our headmaster with with the boys who he thought were promising. He would have an interview with each of us. And I remember him saying to me, well, Hawkins, what what do, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, well, I'm going to become a psychologist. And he just looked at me and said but you could you could have a really good career you could be a doctor or a lawyer 
because in those days being a psychologist was just a, a bizarre concept. Um, so because I decided so young, I didn't have, I didn't know there were different types of psychologists. I didn't know who employed them. I just, because I'd read some psychology books, I just thought this sounds like an interesting thing to do. And so I, I never really had the concept that I had to work in a particular way. Mm-hmm. I just thought, well, as long as I'm using psychology, then, then that's fine. And coming back to what you were saying, Rosie, about private practice, the work in Ukraine, of course, I wasn't earning any money. In fact, over time, it was costing me money. But it, what I gained from that was far more important. And I think for me, private practice might be about making more money, might be about making less money, might be about making no money at all. But it does, in, it does enable that, that freedom that sometimes people find they don't get enough of working, working for the state. Mm. Yeah, and, that, and that's another theme that I think came through in that story was that although you weren't doing it for profit, you weren't money-minded about it for your personal gain, you had to use money to mm, yes. the, yeah. the job done. Yes. That, I had... that sustainability was a big part of how that project grew. Yes, because I was representing a UK charity and so we had to follow UK charity laws. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that didn't necessarily chime well with the Ukrainian way of doing business, where I would often be looking at Ukrainian accounts and thinking, well, where's this money gone? Knowing full well it had gone in bribes and thinking, well, I can't, I can't tell the UK charity this is the money we've spent on bribes. So I was having to reconcile different ways of, of operating different cultures if, if if you if you like yeah that sounds like a massive challenge I mean I would ask how you overcame it but I don't know can you answer that um well I think we we just uh, we just put down amounts for salaries which was true um the the amount that people were paid was sometimes not not the amount that they received for various reasons Mm. And what I also had to do was to make sure that the Ukrainian people were writing the accounts in a way that were decipherable in 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 the UK. Mm. And so we we had to to make the two the two cultures match. And luckily, the the charity the UK charity trustees were very were very sympathetic and understandable and understanding. And so they they helped us make make things work. I mean, there's just so many reasons that that project was improbable that the success yes, of that was yeah. unlikely. And it's, it's just really inspiring to hear how you pushed through all of those barriers. I mean, <clears throat> looking at your CV, I can see that you've got qualifications in business, but that those yeah, come yes. later. Yes. So what inspired you to study? I think it was with the Open University, where I also have studied. Right, right. Um, so what inspired you to, to study business with the OU? Well, part, partly because of the work in Ukraine, I realised that I, I could be a project manager and that I enjoyed project management and it seemed to be something I, I was reasonably competent at doing. Mm. And so a few years later, I saw an advert in, in what was then the, the, the BPS's appointments memorandum asking for associates to do management consultancy. And by then I was, I was head of a psychology department in the NHS. So I thought, well, I'll give this a go. And it was... Uh, a company called Organisation Resource Limited, and um, they were a, a company set up by clinical psychologists to work in business. And they took me on as an associate, um, applying clinical psychology in business, which to me felt like something way outside my comfort zone. But again, having the 
confidence from working in Ukraine. I thought, well, let's give it a go. And I found I enjoyed it and I could do it. What I found, though, was that working with um, CEOs in business, although I had the clinical psychology, I didn't really have the business background. And so I thought, well, if I, if I take an MBA, that will give me the, the business vocabulary as well. Mm. And so I did that and I did it with the OU because then I could, I could do that whilst I was still working full time. And so that felt like it was giving me the extra, the extra edge. Yeah. So, I mean, I, this is showing my ignorance, I know, but I am really interested, like what is management consultancy? Well, there are many different types. The, the type that clinical psychologists often do are really, really focused on two areas. Firstly, change management. So typically we would work with large organisations that were going through mergers or acquisitions and help the various people through that, which in itself would be a long-term process using the psychology of change as a, as a model. Mm. And secondly, conflict resolution. So um, working with management and unions, for example, to, to cope with big changes, applying clinical psychology specifically. And there are many other types of management consultancy, for example, consulting on IT systems, which clearly wouldn't be something a clinical psychologist would do. What I found is that the clinical psychologists who are successful in management consultancy are the ones who are successful at translating core concepts of clinical psychology to people who aren't necessarily attuned to psychology in the first place. That's really interesting um, because on my caseload recently, uh, I've had a few people whose companies have been going through big changes, you know, maybe mergers, and their job roles changed and it hasn't been communicated very well. And I'm now seeing them clinically for the anxiety that that Right, brought. yes, yes. So actually that's kind of put the puzzle piece where it needed to be in my head. And yes, I think yes. I now get what we can do to be useful in that setting. Yes, um, there's an overlap with business coaching as well. So some of my work was and is with someone who may, for example, be a highly talented engineer but has never had any training or seen any particular purpose in people skills. And so my job might be to help that person use their intelligence that's got them where they are as an engineer to become a little bit better at being a people person, if, mm. if you will. That's such a broad spectrum of work. I mean, going from um, helping people with severe learning disability mm. um, to helping you know, talented managers and ceos yes I mean, you've really seen a whole range of people yes yes so i guess you know, what has that really taught you about yourself as a person it's taught me that that psychology is psychology and clinical psychology is equally applicable i think that clinical psychology training in the uk tends to encourage us to pigeonhole and to over specialize we do placements based on people's diagnoses um, or life stages rather than anything else and what I found is that clinical psychology is transferable that the skills that I learned as a clinical psychologist mean that I can work with, with anybody um, it doesn't it doesn't have to be just people I happen to do a specialist placement in or just in a, an area that I've worked in for a number of years that it the the skills we have are extremely transferable that's so interesting because perhaps even the clinical part of clinical psychology is a bit of an unnecessary pigeonhole. Yes, yes. Um, yes, it implies that there's something wrong with the people we work with. Whereas, as I've found, working with people who are 
perfectly healthy psychologically, we we can still help them live as fulfilling a life as possible. Mm. And I've got a friend who's a business coach and she suffers a lot actually from the elitism of the label of of clinical psychology or even the label of therapist and people really looking down on her skill set. But honestly, if I'm struggling with overwhelm or stress or feeling burnt out, like I can't manage my workload, she is the person that will use what I would call act therapy techniques to get me back on my feet. Yes. And to me, it's so similar to what I do in the therapy room. Yes. And she is a master at it. Mm. So I feel sometimes our labels are very constraining. Yes. Professionally and probably also for the people that we're trying to help. Yes. Yeah. So who's been your key supporter through your career? Because I'm guessing a career like this, there have been people along the way that have helped. Yes, many. What I think the, the key thing for me is that the various people who've been my manager over time, I've aimed to learn what I can from each of those people because I've, I've been saying to myself, they haven't got to the position they're in by accident. And so there's, there's something about them that I can learn. So having taken something from each of them. Picking one person, though, uh, John Rose, who's Professor of Clinical Psychology at Birmingham University, He's been there right from when I was a trainee psychologist in Oxford, um, right through to now. He's he's a personal friend now as well. And I think over those years, there have been many times when he's given me advice and also many times when I've used him as a role model, when I've looked at him and thought, well, how, how is he doing that and what can I learn from that? I think we all need somebody like that, don't we? Well, I certainly do. And, and I've found that being open to learning from others is, is key, especially people who perhaps are very different from me, where I think, well, I'm not going to become similar to you. Nevertheless, there are things that I can learn from you and things that I can, can apply and adapt from, from what you do. Yeah, I think that is so important. And um, I'm in a, in, in a group of um, other business owners for marketing coaching. And our backgrounds couldn't be more diverse really Uh, there are people there teaching pilates there are accountants like there's no other psychologist or therapist in the group and i find that i learn so much from you know debating and and thinking about their business problems and thinking in spheres that are so different to mine um that often it's that that will spark my creativity to do something maybe differently and obviously it looks completely different in a clinical psychologist sort of a, a role. It's yes. Sparked by that person's creativity and the way that they approach their tasks. Yeah. So over such an amazingly diverse career, what has been the most surprising or inspiring part of the journey for you? The most surprising part for me was that I could work successfully in Ukraine without being able to speak or understand Russian or or Ukrainian. The most inspiring, I think, was working as a management consultant and finding finding I could do it, even though I had no no background in that, because that that inspired me to think, well, what else, what else maybe I maybe can I do that I wouldn't usually think that I can do. Mm. Yeah, and I hope that some trainees will listen to this, because I think if if I 
if we could all learn that lesson as early as, as you did, then we could do so much in the world. I think a lot of us, we don't learn that until, you know, much later when our time, the time we have left is maybe more limited. But it seems like right from the beginning, you kind of had a bit of that mindset, like, let's try this and just see how it works out. And, and I'm not naive. I recognise that as a, as a white male from a reasonably privileged background, I've had a lot of advantages that other people may not have. I guess we, we all have to deal with the hands that we're dealt. Um, and some of us are, uh, are luckier than others. Some of us have a, a significant amount of privilege. I have a significant amount of privilege compared to many clinical psychologists. And uh, that's important not to shy away from that reality, I think. However, when I'm in front of groups of trainee psychologists, I can always pick out two or three or five who've got that extra spark. Uh, and I think you're the ones who, who are going to make it. You're the ones who've got that, that something extra. Uh, and maybe, maybe the, the real lesson is what have each of us got that, that gives us that, that, that edge over, over other people. Mm. Yeah. And how, I mean, this might be a really difficult question, but if somebody is listening to this and thinking, I really, I don't know if I've got that and I don't know how I would nurture that in myself if I did, what would be your advice to them? I think for me, I, there are three, three lessons really that's, that I've, I've learned. The first one is carpe diem, seize the day, that sometimes we, we don't know that there's an opportunity there until it's gone. Um, many of the opportunities I've had have been simply by replying to adverts um, and, and getting the job or the associate or whatever it is and thinking, well, how come I've got it? I'm, I'm sure I'm not the best person. Nevertheless, I'm the person who applied. So I think a lot of people allow self-doubt to mean that they miss opportunities. Mm. I think the second one for me, I've learned that hard work beats brilliance. I've known many very brilliant clinical psychologists. The ones who also work hard are very successful. The ones who don't work hard usually aren't very successful. I, I know I'm not a brilliant clinical psychologist. However, I've found that hard work can often get there in the end. And I think for me, the third message is no surprises. Um, I aim to not surprise my clients. And the most important thing for me is being on time. I find many clinical psychologists are extremely lazy about being on time. They'll be late to appointments, they'll be late to meetings. And I would say, firstly, never cancel appointments. Secondly, be on time. And thirdly, stay to the end. And why, why is that so important, do you think? I think being dependent and reliable means that it's easy for people to trust us. Mm. Uh, so people, people will know that they can trust me or tr they can trust me to turn up when I say I'm going to and to do what I say I'm going to do so that they don't get surprises. Whereas um, I've, I've got clients who say that with other clinical psychologists, they, they don't know if that person's going to be on time or even if that person's going to cancel the day before. Um, not just clinical psychologists, however, that's the profession I'm in. And so that's the profession I'm particularly interested in. And I think simply treating our clients and our colleagues with respect by turning up and turning up on time, I don't think it's too much to ask. And yet, for many clinical psychologists, unfortunately, it does seem too much to ask because many clinical psychologists do cancel a lot of appointments and are often late. 
and or leave early. Yeah, and I wonder if there's something about the type of pressures that people find themselves under, which can take us away and distract from that core attachment in the therapeutic relationship and in our relationships with colleagues, because, you know, we're all in relationship with each other, which should be a priority. And actually, when we put our clinical heads on and we think as a clinical psychologist, I think it's clear that we would all agree that that should be a priority. So I wonder what what gets that pushed out of the centre of people's Mm. minds. And I, I suppose I'm thinking about my experience of working in central London and I actually, I insisted that I, ha- I was very fortunate because I worked in learning disabilities. Um, so I didn't have the like eight people booked into your diary for you situation. I kind of can't imagine what it's like to work under that. Um, I didn't have to. So I would see only a few people a day and I would only see them in the afternoon because I knew that public transport was so unreliable. But I can imagine people with um, that kind of caseload not to name and shame any particular kind of service but we know where it happens um i imagine they would have been cancelling appointments left right and center mm-hmm. and i wonder if it's something about kind of being totally overstretched and not respecting your own boundaries mm-hmm. that leads to that yes and i think there's a culture in the nhs i think because um the nhs is a monopoly um i i have a long-term health condition so i spend a lot of time um in health appointments and when I'm sat there waiting, uh, I'm often thinking, if this wasn't a monopoly, you wouldn't be able to treat me and everyone else like this, making us sit and wait an hour beyond our appointment time without any apology. So I think as clinical psychologists in the NHS, we're part of a system that doesn't value the, the consumer, that our, our time as a consumer is seen as unimportant because it's a monopoly, because there isn't anywhere else to go. Mm, that's really an interesting perspective and it's not something I've thought about before um yeah I feel like I need to ponder that give me a lot to ponder thank you um so I have a selfish question for you to finish up today sure who would you like to see interviewed on this podcast in the future Lucy Johnston I think that she's very brave because she continues to speak out um, against the biomedical model of mental illness, which is prevalent. Uh, When I was doing my clinical training, anti-psychiatry was very, very live. And I worry that over the decades, clinical psychology has really slipped away from that and that there's a danger of us being assistant psychiatrists. Mm. And I think Lucy Johnston and particularly with publicising the power threat meaning framework is, is a, a vital antidote. And I think that the more that her views are publicised and the more that her work is supported, the better. I would love to talk to Lucy Johnston. Um, I went to, I trained at Salomon's and oh, yes. yeah, yeah and, and so her work was you know, absolutely at the heart of the way mm-hmm. that we were trained. Um, and her book about formulation Right. Yes. First thing I ever read that ever <laughs> mentioned clinical psychology. Right. So I was from a background where I didn't know what a psychologist was. And within a year of finding out, I managed to get myself a job in the prison service as an assistant um, psychologist, which I now know was extremely lucky. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't know what CBT was. And some, for some reason, they gave me the job. 
And so I went from that to somebody gifting me Lucy Johnson's formulation book. Right, right. (laughs) And so I feel like she's really shaped my career. And Mm. she is so courageous on social media. Yes, yes. She often says the things which I might think, but I'd be scared of the backlash. Yes. And part of my motivation with doing this podcast and the Facebook community is that I think we need to fear the backlash a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Because even if it is fierce, which sometimes it really is, it's not bad that you've opened up that debate. Even if sometimes you overstep and you, you have to retract a little bit. Yes. You do see happening sometimes. It's like, oh, actually, maybe I said that a bit strongly or Mm -hmm. being disliked a little bit sometimes by some people might be a sacrifice that we have to make if we actually want to change the conversation about mental health. Yes, yes. Um, And I think she really shows that. So thank you. That's a brilliant suggestion. And I will try and hunt her down (laughs) (laughs) any way I can. So Cliff, if people want to connect with you, which I'm sure they will, if they want to find out more about you yeah how can they find you because i know that's maybe not so easy um no i don't i don't have a i don't have um a web page although i'm thinking that perhaps uh, perhaps i need to I'm, I'm not an early adopter in terms of technology i'm afraid <laughs> perhaps i do need uh, do need um a, a web page however for now um email is the best way my email is cliff hawkey that's c-l-i-f-f-h-a-w-k-i at aol.com brilliant and you're also in the do more than therapy community so I am, yes yeah there. yeah i'm on facebook so uh, that's and um one day one day i'll have uh, one day i'll have a an internet site yes because i hear that your private practice you're making dual location now yes yes i yes i um i've i've relocated to scotland from the west midlands and although i'm still working in the west midlands i'm looking to build up um, my practice in Scotland as well. Okay, so it seems like a website might be helpful. Probably, yes. <laughs> um, well, actually, I should hopefully be getting some resources into the community soon about you know website building, when right. to DIY, when to outsource, that kind of thing. Um, so I will keep you posted for that thank as you. I get it all sorted. But for the time being, thank you so much, Cliff. It's been really inspiring. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.